0: Welcome to JVL. Listen and learn from Japan's venture leaders about the promising startup ecosystem in the land of the rising sun. Hey, I'm Kento, your host for JVL, and today I'm talking to Udara Takaseki. Udada is a co-founder of Omotete, an early-stage startup building a solution to simplify access to menstrual pads. Starting her own company comes to no surprise, as she has a history of starting organizations while in school. For example, she founded an MPO called Your School, which provides educational and social support to hospitalized children, or Anchor to make school trips more joyful for students. She's also interested in urban engineering, for which she recently started a PhD at the University of Tokyo, before pausing it to pursue her passion with Omotete. The reason why I wanted to talk to her is to better understand her entrepreneurial spirit and to get a pulse on the next generation of founders who are taking on the femtech market in Japan. Thanks for joining and please enjoy my conversation with Urella. Hey, Urada. Thanks a lot for taking the time to joining the Japan's Venture Leaders podcast. Um, I'm very thankful that you took the time. Um, Also heard that you're planning to launch a product with Omotete pretty soon. So I'm guessing it's a very busy time for you. Uh, But thanks a lot for joining. And I'm very excited to talk to you today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so um, the topic for today that you proposed was uh, the state of the FEMTAP ecosystem in Japan. I guess it makes uh, sense to the extent that you are a founder in that ecosystem. Um, and so I think you have a lot of stories to share on that topic. But I think I was also very uh, looking forward to doing this episode with you because I kind of saw a little bit how involved and uh, driven person you are, um, like you've been involved in various different student projects, but also MPOs, which you have led, and you seem to be a very kind of impact driven and a very proactive person and i always like talking to these kind of people because i think there's a lot of um, stuff to learn from people like you so yeah very looking (laughs) forward uh, to that part but before we go into the topic of the day um first i want to understand more about omotete and your background of getting there um so would you mind giving us a a quick intro into what omotete is and how it came to be that you founded this kind of business
1: yeah, Um. sure. So our company, we founded it in uh, 2021 uh, fall. And uh, before founding, I had been researching urban planning focused on smart mobility during the last few years. And at the same time, I was also working in a mobility slash smart city startup here. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about mobility needs uh, through and but the focus was not really on women. It was more on the elderly and also in rural areas. Um, So basically in areas where public transportation, uh, conventional like trains and stuff like that was becoming sort of discontinued and people weren't, uh, people had no more options. And so that was the focus before. Um, And around the same time, I'd also been talking and sort of listening to a lot of people about how menstruation is a huge inconvenience in daily life and also for me, which made me think, you know, my period is a barrier to my own mobility or to a lot of women's mobility. And there's not a lot of focus there or any really research being done. Um, so I thought this was a interesting opportunity, but it's not really like a ha ha aha moment of like, it, I thought of it and it's kind of a genius idea. It was more gradual. And I think about it once in a while and I, um, especially around my period and I think, you know, what's something I would want. And so I'd, I would talk to a lot of my friends about it. And some of those people are now my co-founders. We interviewed and surveyed a bunch of people and we thought there's a demand for it. And so we uh, started uh, a service that makes uh, menstrual pads retrievable in bathroom stalls everywhere outside the home.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you tell us maybe a little bit, so uh, you kind of uh, experimented here and there, especially partnering with like maybe high schools or other organizations to test out the concept, but what is your current idea of what kind of product you would like to launch um in the future.
1: Yeah, so we're developing um one a hardware, uh the hardware needed to stock and manage pads in bathroom stalls and also an end user app that will uh initially include an, an in in-app, in-app map where uh, end users can find where the locations of the, the hardware is, and also a take-a-pad function, basically. And our aim is to basically, one, solve this issue of inconvenience, of carrying around pads, managing pads, et cetera, um, in the short run, but in the long run, use that as sort of the touch point to reach users and connect so that we can provide other healthcare services, information, products, and so on. And so basically hardware, software, um, and in the future, other functions as well.
0: Sounds very interesting, and to be honest, I don't know anything about this kind of area. Um, I obviously have very little experience um, exploring um, feminine bathrooms, um, so um, I was just I <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was just wondering, what's the current state of um, how this problem is tackled? Like, are there already existing solutions of being able to get access to free um, menstrual um, products in bathrooms, or is this kind of a super new thing that doesn't exist in Japan yet?
1: yeah sure so um so it's interesting'cause globally there's not that many new uh solutions but um and we've only done maybe surveys to two or three uh, three thousand people, but uh most people report usually they still if they for example like suddenly have a period, they go to the com- convenience store to buy uh, extra pads. sometimes there are pad vending machines in certain cities, uh not just in Japan, but they're very old. They are only coin-based, um, the products are old, they, the operations are low, so it sometimes it's not even stocked, and so it's not very reliable. Um, that's the existing situation. Um, and in recent years, there's some vending machine companies, uh, apart from us, there's two companies in Japan and nowhere else, actually, that aims to provide, I think, Metro pads for free with uh, by providing uh, ads in bathrooms. So basically, they have a big screen in the bathroom stall. If you watch the advertisement, you can take a bad. Um, And then outside of Japan, I think, is more focused on providing free menstrual pads, um, mostly by government or by donations and stuff like that. So there's no really IoT or lock aspect. You can just take one for free. And what we've seen is a lot of those struggle with keeping the pads uh, sanitary, um, keeping them stocked. And so we thought, okay, we can sort of take the locked vending machine aspect of the old product and still keep the sort of easy to take aspect by using IoT, and and now smartphones are prevalent, so we can make it more convenient that way as well. So that's where we started.
0: Okay, nice. And you kind of also hinted at um, the idea that you, to some extent, also s- uh, stumbled upon this idea um, of what you're currently trying to do with Omotete. What was the decision or like the thing thought process behind um, being convinced that this is the right idea to go after? Uh, because I also heard that you kind of, frequently had these conversations with your friends about what kind of business you might start. And so I'm assuming that you had a lot of other maybe interesting ideas to follow, but why did you eventually land on um, this business as something worthwhile to pursue?
1: Yeah, um, I think conclusion would be, I found it personally uh motivated, as in I struggled with this as well. So I had a per- personal motivation, but the other parts were, you know, there's the curiosity aspect of, it's such a black box space, uh, menstruation in general. And also my male friends also had questions about it. And just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I know the experience of all women. And so it's just, there's so much learning in the process of developing the service as well. And there's also other business opportunities that come with the service. And so that's, I think, why we decided to sort of commit to it. But originally we'd been looking into things like cosmetic vending machines. So getting makeup outside of the home. Um, there's also a bunch of like mobility services. My, uh, our CTO was originally working on a mobility service that was like a car sharing service. Um, so basically accessing other people's cars using your smartphones and things like that. Um, but we really didn't feel like any all the other ideas that we had been talking about were interesting enough or impactful enough as in not just social impact, but also just, you know, there's not that much of a n- demand or need for it. I don't think a lot of people are struggling too much with th- those um, topics. And so what really interested was some- us was something that would really sort of uh, hit it hard for people and say, you know, this was something I wanted and I I didn't know I I wanted, I guess, basically, or something that really doesn't exist. Um, and I think what really convinced us in the end was you know, talking to actual use, uh, potential users and uh, reaching out to women who really didn't know. So they didn't really have an incentive to tell us that we had a good idea f- just for the sake of being nice. Um, they really struggled with it um, with menstruation in general. And we got op- honest, honest feedback from companies that we would asked to cooperate in our surveys. And so I think that's what really convinced us in the end.
0: And what would you say is the most memorable learning you have drawn from running OMOTED so far? <laughs>
1: Yeah. Most memorable. Oh, uh, maybe every conversation I've had through the sales and sort of implementation meetings that I've had with, uh, whether it be facilities, um, uh, HR groups in, uh, companies, etc. I've gone to take a, a look into so many companies and people's lives, I guess, and really have come to understand the complexity of the culture or taboo around menstruation. So that's been sort of the memorable learning point, I guess.
0: Sounds good. And uh, so now kind of uh, got a little bit better of an understanding of what you do at Omotete. But um, aside from that, I think you uh, with your personal history also have kind of an uh, interesting background, having spent some time living in the US, but then coming back to Japan and making uh, maybe to some extent um, a conscious choice of staying in Japan um and i think um for people like you who um not only have japanese roots but also have the possibility or all the opportunities possible also across um national borders um i was wondering like what um is it that keeps you in japan
1: yeah, you, um, you're really picking <laughs> up here. <laughs> I think... Um, Not everything is bad yeah, in so, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> great, great, thanks so much, Japan. So a lot of people do encourage me to go abroad, actually. They say you're an English speaker, and also Japan is depopulating, and there's so many issues, like you need to leave here. But I actually think... Uh, first of all, I love a lot of the things here. I love the culture, food, my family and friends are here. So there's a lot of things that I love here, and I don't think we should be too pessimistic. Um, but at, at the same time, I think that Japan does have a lot of social issues that... Um, many countries will face in the future um, and maybe the more that they develop the more they will and so I feel like tackling them is also important for the future of humanity if I'm to be sort of dramatic about it. (laughs)
0: So you feel like you can have greater relative impact being in Japan and doing what you do than going abroad?
1: Yeah also I think the issues are very complex as well Um, and yeah also very interesting. I think it's it's a different sort of phase of of our race, maybe, um, after being developed and after, you know, most people are above a certain level of of you know uh, you know quality of life, and it's a I think unknown territory as well, and so it's, I I also find it just very interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really want to paint a pessimistic picture, um, but I just wanted to um, maybe point out how important it is to have people like you being in Japan. Um, and I think um, especially like in the uh, entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem where people tend to be like a little bit more impact oriented, um, because I feel like a lot of people uh, with um, your kind of background or like similar profile would be very quick um, to either jump into more traditional industries or even leave Japan. Um, And so I guess having um, people like you, like work on interesting problems in Japan is also rare to see, but also very important to see. Um, So yeah, um, I think that's really cool. Uh, I guess in the beginning I pointed out how involved you are in like a lot of different initiatives even before you uh, started working on Omotete. So I also wanted to understand like, what would you say is your greatest source for your drive that seems to convince you to take on all these different uh, projects and um, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is I think the most common question I've gotten in the last three or four years from people. Um I'd say maybe one is frustration, uh, which I think most people who've met me would find it odd because apparently I come off as a very like optimistic, positive person and it's I think it's a very misleading self branding uh problem. But um there's also something else in the Japanese uh language you might know like that I resonate with, uh is motainai, which is like, you know, the feeling of something being wasted, a sense of regret. Over waste, I'd say. Um, it could be someone's potential or a business opportunity or a policy idea or anything. If I feel like something's not realizing its true potential, I feel like you know I need to do something about it, and it's hard for me let to let go. Um, I've also uh had a pretty strong passion for things like political philosophy, social equity in general. Um, but I'm also a strong believer in the idea that like complex solutions cannot be, uh, complex issues cannot be solved with simple quick fix solutions. So. Um, I guess lucky like, for me, me, uh, complex problems interest me more than simple ones. So I guess my curiosity is also another major driving. Okay,
0: so you're frustrated and curious and that yeah. drives you to uh, <laughs> I take guess. on all these yeah. different projects.
1: And yeah, I think maybe overly empathetic or like, you know, I, I tend to put myself too much into other people's shoes is <laughs> maybe the one. The but yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, and then the last question um, I kind of thought of to understand you as a person a little bit better. Since we're in the context of Japan, I uh, wanted to understand um, what makes you Japanese um, and what makes you not.
1: Yeah, um, I thought about this question. It's it's a little bit hard. Well, I was born here and so was my entire family. So legally, I'm Japanese and I speak the language. And maybe unpopular opinion, but I actually like things like keigo, which is like the formal more here a type of Japanese or like the culture and the overall focus on respect here um, some people who say uh, are returnees from the U.S. like me don't really like it oftentimes I find it uh, but I kind of like some of the formalities which is interesting uh, but on the other hand this is coming from someone who feels like their personality in Japanese still feels like an entire different person almost like I'm an actress sort of playing a role um, and I guess what makes me not Japanese, in, um, all, you know, going off of that or how I, why I feel that way is the fact that I got the majority of my education in the U.S. And I've only experienced maybe a few months of majority education, uh, uh, mandatory education here in Japan. So I wasn't really forced into any cram school or take exams to get into an elementary school, middle school. And maybe this hasn't had an effect on my relationship with my parents and teachers. I think that's something that Japanese people tend to have a strong trait of. I've never really felt like I've had to do things how they insisted for me. Um, They've also they've always been for me, people that I can learn with and not necessarily people with the right answers, I guess.
0: Interesting yeah I guess uh, there's always an interesting uh, question to discuss with people like either like biologically Japanese or not, but even like internationals who come to Japan, um, how they see their identity being shaped by their experiences here. Um, I guess there's never like a yeah. Yeah, interesting question. N- never a right answer, but always interesting to understand um, more behind what's uh, behind a face, but yeah, um, so that kind of wraps up the first section um, and now I would like to understand or like dive into the guest topic of today which is the femtech ecosystem um, in japan we've uh, kind of talked about the fact that you kind of uh, to some extent stumbled into the area but nevertheless i think being in that ecosystem now um, and actually working on a product gives you um, an interesting viewpoint into that aspect. Um, and so to open up this uh, second section, um, I would just want to, for all the listeners who have never heard of the term FemTech, um, or, or maybe most of uh, them have at this point, but how would you describe FemTech? Lars?
1: Yeah, that's a lot of pressure, um, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. So it's a term that combines the words female um and technology i think i've heard some people say it's feminism and technology but um and i think it was coined around 10 years ago um but there wasn't much of a buzz until maybe a few years ago at least in japan until four years ago or so when there was there were some big announcements about uh feminist startups being in uh being growing in the space and they said something like generating like millions hundreds of millions in global revenue i didn't know that Um, but yeah, I would, I would think it originally, uh, did intend to focus on technologies that helped women, but I feel like now it's more of a general term that is used to refer to any product or service that aims to help and empower women.
0: And so talking more specifically about the Femtech ecosystem in Japan, um, what would you say is one word that in your mind describes the current state of um, the Femtech ecosystem best in Japan?
1: yeah this is so this is so hard. How would you use an a single word to describe so <laughs> so le- maybe- um I feel like I'm gonna be pretty like harsh or uh definitely controversial because so many people hype up femtech i think, and so maybe just to give a different view I wouldn't go as far to say murky, but I would say maybe fishy right now um and if I'm allowed to use the whole phrase maybe like driven by Various economic interests, maybe, and uh yeah, don't get me wrong, I think the at the individual level, like everyone has good intentions and really care about women, but on the other hand, I think there's a lot of focus on making women more productive, um whether it be for a company or for the economy in general, yeah, is that a bad thing <laughs> um so it I wouldn't say it's a bad or i I would say I think it's a flaw in in the industry at the moment because. I think there's conflicts between what you want uh, I guess what the feminism movement or I guess what we want for women truly and what the economy wants and I guess this is like a, a, a podcast on Japan so like if I'm to say like if I'm to like even go further to say like Japan has a urgent Uh, depopulation and aging problem, but at the same time, it's pretty strict with immigration. So with laws and workplace cultures that make it difficult to say, you know, make up for the depopulating uh, workforce with foreign workers. Um, And I feel like and I don't think a lot of people will like it when I say this, but, you know, there's a sense of we'd rather make our existing female uh, Japanese nationals stay in the workforce rather than uh, adhere to more open immigration policies in a lot of the women empowerment initiatives here and a lot of the, the policies that come out. But, you know, it's a start. And I think if I'm to be more on the positive, optimistic side, and maybe it's just the nature of our society as a whole. Like, it's not a problem with fem- feminism or femtech in, in necessarily in Japan, but it's more of, like, it's inevitable in the way, in the current way of capitalism. So, I mean, at least we're getting somewhere. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I also wonder, like, without that economic incentive that seems to drive, like, almost, uh, almost everything that humans do, um, I guess, yeah, that's also the question, like, how quickly would things have moved without the economic incentive in the first place? Um, I guess there's, like, um, uh, this moral imperative um, that everyone wants to adhere to, but um, if if there's money behind it, then, then there's, like, a lot uh a lot bigger incentive and it's a lot easier to convince yourself that there's the direction that you should actually move towards but yeah nice um yeah i mean uh, don't uh, worry too much about like two controversial takes um i guess that's uh, provides more ground for interesting discussion so uh, keep it coming so i think you touched upon that already a little bit but what would you say are like some things that make the japanese femtech market different
1: from others hmm. i would say oh if i can say like first maybe one, it's interesting to see the American uh, femtech industry because sometimes I'll see like organic or high quality pads and things like that. It's also included in the femtech market. But I think Japanese people, most people find it that the cheap ones here are pretty good quality. So they don't really need a new market for that. Um, But on the other hand, in in general, I think it's generally true for Asia. Um, We've never had a culture of using tampons as well. I think culturally not comfortable or, or there's a lot of taboo behind it. And so there's also not really a market, at, at least at the moment for things like uh, tampons or things that you sort of insert into your body um, because originally people didn't do that even with uh, disposable ones. So when it comes to reusable ones, people I think are also more hesitant and they take up a huge part of the femtech market. So I think that's also something that differs. Um, there's a lot of hesitation around those uh, products as well. Um, but other than that, in general, it's hard for me, I think, I'm not an expert either, so to differentiate the Japanese market. But something I find is peculiar is, also as a consumer, is the amount of contraceptive subscription service ads and companies I see. Um, I definitely agree, it's a, it's currently a pain in the ass to get your hands on the pill here because of regulations. But I'm curious, because the business models of these contraceptive, contraceptive uh, providers Uh, I feel like they sort of depend on these regulations that aren't really helping women. They're making it harder for women to access them. And as soon as these regulations sort of change, their business model is going to, you know, is sort of going to is also basically the, the need for their existence would be in question. So it's curious for me to think like that there are so many companies in that field.
0: Are you surprised that there are so many or you would?
1: Yeah, no. I'm surprised to see that there are so many that basically only solve the solution of the fact that it's a hard it's hard to access the pill here, because if they change the regulation, they it could be easier to get it in your neighborhood or something like that. But and also it's based on subscriptions and things like that. And I feel like um, from my view as a consumer, I would question their sort of place in the regulations uh, where they would try to take it because it's in their favor to keep the current reg- regulations to make it harder for women to have uh to access the pill on the day of or you know in in at the at a clinic. So I'm thinking where their political stance is going to be also what, you know, what their the sort of the, the need for their existence will be in general and how they'll actually stay alive as a company but as a business. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you're pointing like I'm um incumbents, but also like regulations kind of also uh, slow down that rate of change that's happening in Japan, especially in the Femtech market. Um, I guess uh, that's not just a phenomenon seen in the Femtech industry, but I guess um, uh, to all things relating to um, innovative technologies, especially developed by smaller um, up and coming companies. Um, But yeah, um, I guess that's one of the um, further characteristics of the Japanese startup ecosystem. So I'm not sure to which extent you also like uh, interact with other products in the Femtech industry. But uh, I was wondering, since I'm also like not an expert in that field, which other Femtech uh, products do you see in the Japanese market and which ones do you find most interesting?
1: Mm, Yeah. So to get like a bigger picture of the industry first here, like maybe let's look at what's being sold, put into maybe buckets. One bucket would be like the new mentor products. I personally, I hope, as a consumer, have never had an issue with the existing products. Um, maybe the environmental side and maybe the inconvenience of like accessing them or carrying them around, that's about it. But this is one of the biggest, I think, areas of Femtech. Um, and this includes like reusable pads, period underwear, cups, discs, and things like that. Um, I just have my eyes on them and try them once in a while because I also have some friends who are founding these companies. Um, there are also the, the pill companies that I just mentioned earlier, there's a lot of skincare actually, um, most, mostly for your delicate areas. Like, so it's interesting for me because from my view, it's like, you could use other, uh, skincare, I, or I would think, uh, as an uninformed consumer that you could just use any lotion for your skincare, but they have a lot of these specific things that are coming out and yeah, it's interesting to see like what, how they differ, um, depending on body part, I guess. There's also some self-pleasure device companies that I think they already existed, but um, I'm more interested in, in the marketing that they do. They do a lot of like small exhibits, small little uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what the, you call those, like campaigns at uh, shopping malls and stuff like that. So the, the way that they try to make it not too public and not too sort of pushy, but also makes it uh, comfortable for consumers to go and visit them Um there are social wel- welfare apps um, or more general healthcare apps. I've never been very good with managing my health on apps. So I'm curious to see if there's any that would be like easy enough for me to handle. Um, and then there's groups like this, us where they make, they're trying to make pads available outside of the home. They I just keep my eyes on them in general. But I think personally, something that I'm especially sort of curious about is the, the, are the products in the hormonal health space. I feel like a lot of people struggle with managing their mood or health through their period and hormonal balance is so hard to tackle as someone who's not a professional and expert. Um, and it's funny because lately I hear a lot of people talk about whether they have hormonal imbalance issues or it's just their default personality or anatomy. And so I feel like it's a really black box that um, I hope uh, someone will help me guide sort of through. Yeah. So that's something I'm, in- I'm interested in.
0: Um, do you have like any specific examples of companies that you find very interesting aside from like larger areas?
1: Oh, yeah. So it's hard for me. I don't want to pick up any specific companies because they're either people of people I know or because they're famous or, and I don't know whether they, yeah, this is the other sort of the murky fishy part that I wanted to address is like, there are specific organizations that are dedicated to fact checking femtech companies. Okay. Now there's like two or three oh, organizations. Some of them are nonprofits yeah. because they're uh, worried that a lot of these companies are taking advantage of women or exploiting them or providing things that don't, that aren't fact ba- based, uh, backed by facts Um, and so I personally don't know what I can, uh, you know, endorse. So that's how, why I kind of avoided the question. Mm, I see. Okay.
0: So, um, even from your perspective, it's like, um, maybe especially for things that seem especially innovative and especially groundbreaking, it's hard to understand to what extent the innovation is actually legitimate or not, that kind of thing, or?
1: Yeah. It doesn't even have to be super innovative. Sometimes it's just like, oh, this cream will do this or this clothing this machine will do this and it's a lot of claims that you know i think it's in the beginning it's hard to provide proof but i think you do need to it's it does you know affect people's health and well-being in the end so i think it would be better if they could uh yeah just let consumers know what they're getting themselves into also you know have it checked by authorities and things like that. And I think that's what the organizations are trying to do. I think the organizations are also very political. So I'm not saying these organizations are like, you know, uh, you know, angels, but.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Um, Do you have like some framework for yourself? Like, I don't know um, if, to what extent you use like a lot of um, sp- uh, special or innovative products in that field for your personal use. Uh, but like, if you think about which new products you might be interested in trying, like do you have some, Way to think about that like do you mainly listen to what your friends recommend or um i don't know how do you try to go about that
1: yeah so some of the uh some of my friends who are really interested in just startups in general or or interested in femtech or interested in feminism they tend to be sort of active in trying new products so i do ask for their opinions and it's much i don't want to say cheaper for me but they tend to sort of spend the money for me to try a bunch of different products femtech products are not cheap so It's helpful for me to have their advice. But at the same time, I know that everybody has different bodies, different, you know, situations, different allergies, for example, or different physical sort of uh, anatomy. So some people will say, oh, this cup was too small or this cup was too big. And if it's too big, it 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 can hurt your body. But if it's too small, it'll fall out. Things like that, you know, you really have to try yourself. But at the same time, I also, you know, even if I'm trying to be informed, I do see some people having health issues from certain products or certain types of products. So... Um, I do try to keep my eyes just out, you know, uh, be aware as much as possible, but if it's anything I'm trying, I do try to see little by little. It's not really a framework or anything, like you said, but if it's like a skincare related thing, for example, I put it on my hands first instead of anywhere else, things like that. Um, but yeah, I've I've been getting a lot of samples from different companies uh fortunately um like like you mentioned, I kind of stumbled into the space, so it's very interesting to see how many different players there are and different types of products are there are and there are some t- products I get sent that like I would have never found researching on my own, so that's also interesting but yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what I've been doing to sort of learn more about the space
0: and do most of these innovations come from existing bigger companies or um also like a lot of startups that um, like are busy innovating and try to send you new new products?
1: Uh, yeah, I think they're more or so smaller companies. And that's also why people are kind of worried as well in trying to govern the space. I think big companies, they haven't, I don't know a lot of com- big, uh, fem- I, they're not femtech companies. They're just companies that have been doing things that provide services or products that can be labeled femtech. And so they're not really new products, I would say, or they're kind of the arranged versions of original products. And my understanding, with speaking with uh, with big companies that provide, for example, menstrual pads and things like that, they have no incentive in starting new product lines unless they they've been proven to be you know profitable, because they have existing products that would be replaced by them. So, um, I think they're just trying to see how things are, and. So far, I think it's just too early for for a lot of Japanese people to start using these new innovative products at the moment. So a lot of the Femtech founders that I know are struggling to have uh, uh, consumers repeat their products or services. And so I think it'll take a little bit of time before big players start coming in. Okay.
0: Thanks a lot. So now um, to wrap up this uh, section of the Femtech ecosystem, um, I would like to uh, just steal one concept from uh, the sprint methodology, the, the retrospective, and one framework that is used uh, commonly in sprint retrospectives is this thing called start, stop, and continue. And I would like to apply that to the Femtech ecosystem to understand how can things be improved in the future. So to start off, um, what is one thing that you would like the industry to start? Um, to make things better in the future
1: yeah maybe greater focus on making problems more visible and I think sort of in detail as well I think the existing researcher or the way things are done at the moment it's too broad to the extent that we don't really know the specific needs of people so we know people struggle with menstruation but like specifically how so like maybe through education research surveys I don't know but something like that I've met way too many people who disregard uh women's health issues because quote unquote i've never seen it or heard about it, or my wife doesn't have that i think um and it's interesting because it's not just men as well um it, a lot of women make these comments um the i guess lesson being like a lot of people assume that their experiences are the same that uh, are the same as the ones that others experience, and they'll just make judgments based on their reality so Maybe trying to inform people so that they can be they can be more aware of saying you know people have different experiences maybe you don't have this issue but other people do, and you know so that we can in, uh, involve more people into uh, making I guess existing or future femtech solutions like better.
0: Okay, cool. What is one thing that the industry should stop? Stop.
1: This is interesting. Um, so there's not a lot of things that ha- are being done any anyway, to start <laughs> okay. with. So I okay. mean, so I guess I would say like stop and in- don't or stop uh, blindly encouraging products or services, um, whether it be without evidence or without whatever it is. I think like the timeline of the femtech space and also the women uh, entrepreneurship uh, empowerment sort of timeline as well is sort of aligned. And I think it's me, myself included, like it's easy to put women, uh, female entrepreneurs on a pedestal because there's so few of us. And we want to encourage at least some sort of visibility um, of some faces out there. But at the same time, it's, I can't help but to think that some people are just kind of blindly supporting stuff. Um, It's not to critique any specific person, but I would just say, you know, even for the sake of our, our us as entrepreneurs or uh, or for the consumers, you know, look into stuff really and really ask questions to, to these people because if something goes wrong, it's also bad for the, the female entrepreneurs as well in the long run. So that's something, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, I guess a lot of what plays into that um, thought process also, some people want things to be right more than they can question what is right or not. Um, and so they can... I guess, play with people's mind at some point.
1: Yeah. Also, like, they don't have skin in the game. So it's like they can encourage whatever they want. I mean, if, if there's an event or a company or, you know, start, a, what is it, an accelerator that want more women, they'll just support. I mean, they have all the incentives to support. And if it doesn't go well, well, it's just one of the other, you know, hundreds of companies that they go through anyway. So lack of skin in the game, maybe. it's <laughs> cheap.
0: All right. Um, the last thing, what would you like to see the industry continue to do in the future?
1: Continue, I think... They there are a lot of subsidies and funding that are trying to support uh research and experimentation. So I think that would help us get a, a greater understanding of a better understanding of how how things are working, how people are reacting to it, etc. But um to improve it, maybe have more uh, objective opinions. Like if we're doing a survey, for example, we are obviously encouraged to make it seem like oh menstrual pads, existing menstrual pads are the best because that's what we're providing. And if it's a menstrual cup company if they do the survey, they're encouraged to, you know, target people for the survey, people who already use them. So I think maybe if we could have more objective uh you know, players in the in in the research and stuff like that. It would be better, but um, yeah, keep keep doing that maybe and keep up the funding in general. <laughs>
0: okay, nice, thank you. So to wrap up the entire podcast, I have prepared three rapid fire questions. Um, to those, I just expect like very short answers, uh, maybe a maximum one sentence, uh, maybe even just a word. But the questions I've prepared is firstly, um, if you were not allowed to work in anything startup related, what would you be working on
1: now? Yeah, it's. This is hard because uh, my goal has never really been in, uh, in startups in, in and of itself. But originally I wanted to go into urban planning. That's something. So local government or my, a lot of my friends are in MLIT. So the ministry uh, that's in charge of urban planning in general, uh, that's something that's okay. really fun too. Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> what advice would you give to aspiring student founders in Japan? Since you're a kind of technically a yeah. uh, student yeah. slash researcher and then also um, a founder.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Really think and keep your eyes on what's very important in every conversation or negotiation, most people you'll work with will either be older or have more experience, but they also tend to have blind spots and not know what they're doing. So, you know, uh, think a lot and more than anyone else, you know, and diversi- diversify your community and meet as many as you, p- people as you can so that you can stay sort of open-minded.
0: Cool. And last question, what does Japan need to
1: blossom? Mm, more people with skin in the game, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't say everybody needs to do a startup, but I think... People just find themselves to be sort of the outsider. They're just kind of watching what's happening. I, I think everybody has the power to change. Every, anything. So be more, yeah. uh, be more active
0: and <laughs> uh, play a role. Be yeah. more
1: active and, yeah, challenge yourself. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's more fun too.
0: (laughs) All right, cool. Thanks a lot Udala. I think especially like the the Femtech ecosystem part, like I also realized how uh, big of a noob I am uh, in that uh, field. And so uh, thanks a lot for enlightening me and also the audience uh, more about uh, what the Femtech ecosystem (laughs) is like in Japan. Um, And also thanks for providing some uh, more critical takes. Um, I think that was really valuable and really enjoyed the podcast. I hope you did too. And uh, see you next time.
1: Yeah, fun talking to you, thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode with Udara. Since Japan is a country where obedience is deeply rooted in the culture and thinking differently often leads to a negative impact on social status, it seems harder to follow the entrepreneurial route. Interestingly, the Japanese word for obedient is otonashi, with otona meaning adult. It implies that being obedient is part of becoming an adult and underlines the importance of rule following in Japan. Her story and drive is one of the great counterexamples of the upcoming generation being willing to think differently about the way problems are being solved and to take action when needed. As she mentioned in the end, there's a need for a lot more people in Japan to act that way. To learn more about Udada's company, make sure to visit at en.omotete.jp. If you like this episode, please follow and rate it on whichever podcast platform you're listening from and for feedback, please reach out to jvl.podcast at gmail.com.
1: Thanks again and see you next time.